0: We're going to be looking today at the book of Job this evening, so let me go ahead and just start us off with a, just a word of prayer as we approach the Word of God, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into it. Our Lord, we marvel at your goodness. You are gracious and you're compassionate. You are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you are faithful. You are faithful to your Word. And you have showcased yourself in history. And you have revealed yourself with words and communicated to us. For how well else would we know without your word? And Lord God, we marvel at your word. And we pray that we would even that much more marvel at your word as of this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a man named Job. He was righteous, but he suffered greatly for it. And he did not come to know why he suffered so much. And because of this, he expressed all his wishes And all his questions with all the angst of his heart. And then Job died without ever seeing any of his wishes come true. The end. Let's pray. No, just kidding. Was that the end? Job is often a misunderstood book. We tend to view the book as a self-help manual for how to suffer well. In other words, let's find the good in what Job did, and let's emulate that. Let's find the bad in what Job did, and let's learn from that. If you come away from Job with those implications, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. By doing so, you're actually applying a lot of the implications and applications that the book would have you apply. That's a good thing. This book is instructive to us For how to suffer well. It helps you to understand how to suffer in a godly way. It teaches you how to be quick to hear and slow to speak. But if that's the only thing that you come away with after studying Job, then may I be so bold as to say perhaps you don't fully understand the book yet. In other words, if you believe that the main point of Job is about suffering, then I would argue that you haven't yet fully grasped the main point of the book. But that's why I want to teach on it this evening, because I think that there's more here that we can discover together. And if you're willing to walk through a book with me that may be quite familiar to you and engage it in a fresh way, I think that you will come to appreciate this book that much more And I must make a caveat here that many of the observations and the study that I have from this sermon this evening have been supplemented a lot from a class that I listened to from the Master's University by Dr. Abner Chow. And it's funny because I was listening to these sermons, I remember them very vividly because when I used to live with my parents back in the day, I was mowing their lawn every Saturday. And I would be listening to this series. I was like, I'm going to start this Job series by Dr. Chow. And I just remember specific moments, different parts of the yard that I was in. I was like, wow, that's cool. So now when I think of those things, I think about that part of the yard in my parents' house. That's really funny. But I trust that you will also get much out of this because of these studies that have been uh, done by Dr. Chow and then others as well who have studied so deeply the word of God Turn your Bibles over to Job chapter one, Job chapter one. I want to set some context for you this evening. Job chapter one. And you probably know this story. Job 1, verse one. Job is a blameless man. He's an upright man. He fears God, He turns away from evil. You must understand that this is something that even God declares about Job in verse 8. So it's not something that's just up for debate. Is that really true about Job? Is the author mistaken about that? No. This is God's take on Job. Job was righteous. Job was righteous. More than, arguably, what he says than any other person on the planet. Job was also wealthy. Extremely wealthy. He also had the perfect number of sons. He had seven sons. In Hebrew, that was valuable, symbolic for complete. He also had three daughters, which was also a number that symbolizes wholeness. And he loved his children dearly, even more than his wealth. And you could see that because he would actually, as a priest in those days, he operated like a priest, he would sacrifice offerings daily even though he didn't have to he just did it just because just in case job was on top of the world it's hard sometimes to see that right off the bat but he is he is literally on top of the world he was like a super center of resources everyone traded with Job because job had everything All was well for Job. But notice in verse 6, look at verse 6, the scene shifts away from this beautiful, peaceful moment. And our eyes gaze into heaven, and we have a different setting. And who talks first here? Satan does, right? No. Satan does not talk first. God does. Satan is not equal with God. This is not a power struggle between two supernatural beings. Satan, like every other angel, or like every other fallen angel, must present himself to the king of the universe and answer for his comings and his goings. Where have you come from? What have you been up to? The Lord asks. And then the Lord brings up Job. The Lord brings up Job. Job is not Satan's idea. Be very careful and observe what's going on here. Job is God's idea. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. Have you set your heart on my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Well, you, God, have given Job protection and wealth, Satan responds. That's why Job remains faithful to you, but take away everything that he has and he will disown you. He will even curse you. Do You see how Satan believes that he's the one that's authoring this conspiracy against Job. Satan actually kind of believes that. But who brought up Job to begin with? It's God. Satan thinks he's using God. But actually, God is using Satan. So, with God's permission... Satan sets up a series of disasters to take place. This is incredible. Verse 15, the Sabaeans. The word is Shiva. Um, Sheba, the queen of Sheba. This would be that territory. But this is obviously way before the queen of Sheba. And because the queen was from the south, we would then argue and know that the Sabaeans attack from the south. They attack from the south, and they take the cattle and they kill Job's workers. Verse 16, fire from the sky consumes Job's flocks and kills the workers. Verse 17, the Chaldeans, they would arguably coming from the east, but they would probably come in from the north. So they're coming down from the north, and they seize the camels, and they kill the workers. I'd hate to be the workers. They all just die in this story. But do you see how Job is attacked from all sides? From the south, from the north, and even an aerial attack from the sky. That's intentional. That's intentional. Satan wants Job to believe he is cornered on every side. Everyone in the world is against him. Then in verse 18, Satan saves the most precious for last, His children are killed by a powerful wind collapsing the house upon them, crushing them under its weight. And this is Satan twisting the dagger in Job's heart. Maximum pain possible. Save the best for last, or I should say, save the worst for last. And in every situation, ironically, only one man survives. Wow, only one man in every episode. But that's intentional. Satan wanted that too. Satan wants everyone dead to inflict the maximum pain, but he wants one survivor so that that survivor can come and tell Job of all of the gory details that took place. And then in verse 16, the survivor, in verse 16, he comes with impeccable timing. It's incredible. He comes while the previous survivor is literally finishing his words from the previous event. It says, while this one was speaking, also another one came and he said... You see that in verse 16? Yeah? Then in verse 17, it's the same thing. While this one was speaking, another one came and then he said... And then in verse 18, and then while this one was speaking, another one came and he said, that sounds like that's way too coincidental. Is this a made up story? How could these things happen such that only one man escapes the episode, each event, and each one comes to Job just as the previous person is finishing his words? How is that possible? But again, that was the whole point because it's divinely orchestrated. You say, well, no, it's orchestrated by Satan. Yes, but you see, God granted to Satan a very, very temporary ability to orchestrate a divine-like sequence of events intended to cripple Job with rapid-fire blows to engineer the greatest possible pain you could imagine. You see Satan doesn't normally have that kind of ability. This story even tells you that. He doesn't have that ability. This is something that was granted to him on a very short leash. And it was done for a very intentional point. Something like this that would be given to Satan would have to be temporary and it would have to only be on God's terms. And so Satan was given this temporary leash to construct a divine, you could almost say providential-like ambush on Job. In fact, Job then, because this is true and because it looks so God-like, he believes wholeheartedly that who afflicted him? God. Notice how with God's oversight, Satan actually designed the details of the catastrophe to look like a divine act. Verse 16 says, fire of what came down? Fire of God. Fire of God came down. That's, what, that's the eyewitness testimony saying that was from where? From who? From God. Verse 19, a great wind picked up the four corners of the house A great wind. What could pick up the four corners of a house? That's like tornado-like events. That's a cosmic event. That's a God-like event. Without any other information, the eyewitnesses of these events are led to conclude that God caused these catastrophes and God alone. Satan doesn't normally have that ability, nor are they thinking theologically, oh, there must be a Satan that could probably do this fire of God, a great wind, cosmic events. Do you see what is happening? Satan has designed these disasters, very important, he's designed these disasters to frame God, to frame him. He wants Job and everyone to conclude that God did this to Job. And that's exactly what everyone concludes in the entire story. And by the way, God never corrects anyone on that that's why job struggles in this understanding of god throughout the rest of this book job never struggles with his understanding of satan satan wants job to turn against god not against satan satan wants to remain invisible in the whole story and guess what He does remain invisible, the whole story. Job and his friends never speak of Satan, ever. That's the point of the whole thing. So Satan frames God for these disasters so that Job thinks God wants to harm him. But here's the thing. Who brought up Job? God did. Who gave Satan this very temporary amount of power to orchestrate these events? Who even limited Satan as to what he could do and what he couldn't do? God did. Yeah, that means Satan's framing God. Aha. But God wants Satan to frame him. Now, does that blow your mind? Like why would God want that? God wants Satan to frame him. Now you're starting to tap into what Job is all about. This cuts to the heart of the book of Job. Job is not just about the suffering of the first two chapters. If it was, it would be at the highlight, it would be at the peak of the book, and it would conclude pretty quickly, wouldn't it? Nope. Job is the boring part. It's all about the boring part in the middle, isn't it? The part that we don't really fully understand, usually. Job is about the dialogue between chapters 3 and 41. And that dialogue is provoked by the suffering, so the suffering is really important, but it's a vehicle. It's a means to an end. Listen, God wants to be framed so that the conversation can happen. God wants to be framed so that the conversation can happen. God wants Job and his friends to question whether he was the direct cause of these catastrophes. And so, this is incredible. This blows our mind. Why would God ever do this? But God actually leaves them alone to use whatever wisdom they have to try to figure it out. They just, he just leaves them there. He doesn't intercept them. He doesn't say, oh, no, that was wrong. No, 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 that's not how it happened. He leaves them to try to figure it out on their own. Why? And that's what you should ask. Why would God do that? Why? So that they would be forced to ask questions like this. Does God really afflict righteous people more than he afflicts wicked people? Is that what God does? This is the question that God wants people asking. Because from the, his friend's perspective, they would say, well, Job... I mean, think about this. I know that they beat up on Job a lot, right? We get that, right? But not, they, weren't, they were his friends, right? They were his friends. And because Job is at the top of the world, they're probably some pretty smart, wealthy people and very wise. And actually, we see that in the way that they talk in the book. But they would be thinking, at least from the outset, okay, Job on paper, the way that we see him externally, he is the most righteous man that we know. And he's suffering more than any man that we know. So why would God do that to someone? Why? That's that's what they're grappling with. Do you see why it's not so illegitimate? Why they question Job on what he's doing or not doing? What's going on behind the scenes in his life? It's questions like these that really drive the book of Job. God pushed Job to the deepest despair to get him to, mo- to ask the most important questions with the greatest earnest. God pushed Job to the deepest despair to get him to ask the most important questions with the greatest earnest. That's what this book is about. That's what this book is about. It's about the questions. It's about the questions. In the aftermath of the disasters, you probably know it pretty well, Job is literally sitting on a pile of trash, which is basically indicating what he thinks about himself and his life at this point. He literally wants to be thrown away, and he wants to die. And Job's three friends travel to see him. You know their names, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Okay? Those are the, his three friends. And no one says anything for quite a while. There's a lot of silence And then Job raises his voice in lament in chapter 3. And as Job begins to express his deepest emotions, it prompts his friends to reveal their true intentions for coming. The true intentions of his friends start to become clear. Now, at first, it would seem like they came to comfort. But then it becomes clear that these friends have an agenda. They have an agenda. Yes, in some way, they did come to comfort Job. The terminology in the text says that. But that's not the primary reason why they're there. And before we beat up on Job's friends, we must realize that when we have conversations with others... We sometimes have multiple agendas in our own hearts, too, don't we? It's not that we didn't have a good agenda. It's just we might have multiple agendas. It's not that the three friends are vindictive and malicious against Job. I would not think that that's the case here. It's not that they didn't come to comfort at all. I think that they did come to comfort. But there was also a deep-seated suspicion in their hearts They came to ensure that Job sinned, and you should ask why. Why would they come to ensure that? Now think about it. Think about human nature. Why would someone want to come to ensure that someone sinned? Drill down into that a bit, and I think you easily would come to this answer, because they know that if Job didn't sin to bring this upon himself, then these disasters could happen to them. See that? It's all about control and fear. Like we all do, they sought to find a reasonable explanation for why Job suffered. One that would ensure that they could control the outcome if they were presented with the same threats. When someone we know gets fired from work, sometimes we may try to find in our heart a reasonable explanation for why maybe a fault or a misgiving that they had that may have caused it sometimes when someone's depressed we want to assume immediately there must be a long history of negative thinking that would have precipitated this that there can't be any other explanation and perhaps that's true but perhaps there's other factors involved sometimes it's something as simple as someone we know has died in a car accident and we scramble to find a human error in the process we're just trying to find an error. Uh, who's at fault? What caused this? Was the driver too sleepy? Is this a bad seatbelt problem? Was there another driver involved? Was that a drunk driver? And all of those questions, they're not wrong questions. It, they're, they're good questions. We should pursue and see if we can figure out what those answers are. But sometimes they can come from a motive that is fearful and can be sinfully motivated. And you know your heart, and you know how it sometimes can be. We scramble to find the answers, to find fault with something or someone, but the question is, why are we scrambling? What's the scrambling? Why are we doing that? Because we're trying to ensure that it won't happen to whom? To us. How do we prevent it from happening to us or people we love? Instead of approaching it like, I love this example, instead of approaching it like Jonathan Edwards' wife, after her beloved husband died in such an arbitrary way from a smallpox vaccine, her response could easily have been one of accusation and anger. Someone's got to be liable for this. Either these vaccines aren't safe or the doctors were not careful or maybe the the regional government didn't take enough action. On and on and on, she could have gone. And if she had responded that way, what would be motivating her heart? It would be fear. It would be fear. Wanting to control the outcome. Fear that life would be out of her control, that it could happen to her without warning, or I would argue that it could... She probably would have a heart for her kids and say, I don't want that to happen to my children. But she didn't respond that way. Instead, in her words to her daughter, she said, My very dear child, what shall I say? Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. The Lord has done it. Not careless doctors. Not an indifferent government. Not a poorly designed vaccine. No, the Lord has done it. But that's not how Job's three friends responded, they came with composure from without but deep-seated fear from within. They came to find fault with Job to protect their false assurance that they can control the outcome of their lives. So the debate got heated very quickly. And as the accusations begin to pile up against Job, Job is left fending for himself and his only ally in the whole arena... Is his own conscience. Can you imagine that? Some people, I think, at that point would be weak enough to just want to believe an alternate reality. I guess you're right. I guess I did sin. But as he stands by the truth, the reality of it, I did not sin. And as he stands by his conscience, it forces him to face the question, if I didn't cause this to myself, then why did God do this to me? See how that gets him into that question? That's why he's going there. Remember, God's assessment of Job, God's assessment is that he's righteous. That's God's assessment. Job didn't deserve this, at least not in comparison to to anyone else in the world who is not suffering like this. You see that? And from these questions, the heart of Job blossoms in front of us as we read the book. And we hear not only his questions, but we hear his dearest wishes as well. His dearest wishes. Christmas is almost upon us. It's about a week away. And our children are making heroic leaps and bounds in their writing skills as they compile their elaborately crafted Christmas wish lists, aren't they? And the difficulty is not getting our children to write a Christmas wish list, it's trying to keep it to one page. Goodness. Well, Job had a wish list. He had a wish list, and that's what we will use the rest of the time this evening to look at together. Specifically, there are five wishes of Job that I want to look at with you. And for the first one, I want you to turn your Bibles over to chapter 7. Job chapter 7. Job chapter 7, and we'll look at verse 16. Many of you have the Legacy Standard Bible, and that's going to be a good and faithful translation. If you don't, that's fine. You still have probably a good translation in front of you, but Uh, This will be helpful for you as you see this in verse 16. Verse 16 starts and says, I've rejected everything. And you'll probably see how the word everything is in italics. That's because it's technically not there. It's trying to make sense of what he's saying. I've rejected, is what it says. I've rejected. I will not live forever. Stop. He literally says, Stop. Halt. Almost get away from me, for my days are vanity. What is man that you make him great and that you set your heart upon him and that you visit him every morning or examine him every morning and that you test him every moment. This is the first wish from Job. The first wish is stop pestering me, God. Stop pestering me, God. How about that for a Christmas wish list? No one in the story is questioning the notion that God did this to Job. No one questions that. They have no way to know otherwise. Everything was orchestrated to look like it was directly from God. So Job cries out in verse 16, I've rejected, I've rejected. Perhaps I've rejected to live or I've rejected everything that this world has to offer God, you've made life so painful for me, I don't even want to live anymore. In fact, he says to God, in the second part of verse 16, stop, leave me alone. It would be better if you didn't even put so much of your focus and attention on me. Stop putting your microscope on me. Focus on somebody else kind of like the adage, focus on someone your own size, right? Like, stop doing that. It's hard for us to imagine, I think, maybe getting to that point with God, but perhaps you have had similar thoughts like that. Severe suffering can cause this kind of rationale, because we know that God orchestrates everything. So this is actually good theology kicking into gear, because you know that God is sovereign over it, and so he would have caused these kinds of things. So when the dial of pain is elevated to extreme levels, God can become, in our estimation, our opponent. God, if you just forgot about me, things would be easier. Stop picking on me. Stop zeroing your attention on me. It only causes me more pain. And then verse 17, he asks, Who is man? Who is man that you magnify him? Who is man that you make him great? In other words, isn't man so small to you anyways? Why are you putting that microscope on us to magnify us? Why don't you just leave me alone? Why zoom in on my life and cause me so much trouble? This is Job's first wish, that God would stop pestering him. And we will see in a moment how significant that is for the rest of Scripture. But for now, let's talk about wish number two. Wish number two. I want my day in court with God. I want my day in court with God. Turn over a page or two to chapter 9, verse 3. Job chapter 9, verse 3. If he delights to contend with him, this is... If someone, if some man delights to contend with God, he could not answer in one word out of a thousand. And want you see that word contend there. That word contend, that's courtroom terminology. That's arguments going back and forth. In other words, if someone wants to go to court with God, he would have no arguments that would help his case. Job goes on in chapter 9 to talk about how God is the creator of the universe. So if he's the creator, then he can do whatever he wants. Why would we suppose that we could even go to court with God and reason anything with him? I mean, he created the court. He created the rules of the court. If he's determined that something's going to be so, then it's a done deal. There's no going back. There's nothing that we can argue in return to reverse it. Verse 19 says, if it is in reference to strength, he, behold, he's the mighty one. And if it is in reference to judgment, well, who, then who will make him testify? In other words, there's that courtroom terminology again to testify. If we're talking about strength, well, he's mightier than me. I can't overpower him, so he can't go that route. If we're going to talk about arguing a case of judgment and justice, well, then how do we even get him up on the stand to testify? No one can force God to testify in court. He's God. No one can tell him what to do. And Job realizes something about this situation at this moment. God is not man. Like, yeah, I know, right? Like, that's pretty obvious. That's a pretty obvious thing. It's interesting, though, how deep, deep suffering really shows how important that is. God is not man. He's totally separate. He's in a category that is completely beyond man. In this way, there is no one who can compel God to take the stand in court and then at the same time also represent Job in his case and know everything about his situation. There's no one who can do that. Such a person, if he could even exist, would have to be on the same level with God so that he could compel God to take the stand, And he would also have to be equal with man to represent Job's case. Wow, if only someone like that existed. Verse 32 For he is not a man like me, so I could answer him, that we would come together in judgment or in court, you could say. There is not between us a mediator, or you could translate it a lawyer who can set his hand on both of us. Okay, so Job's wish is, I want my day in court with God, and then a sub-wish underneath that, he's made clear, I wish that someone would be both God and man to represent us both fairly in that court. I wish that someone would be both God and man to represent us both fairly in court that's wish number two. Wish number three. Oh, that God could make man right. Oh, that God could make man right. This is actually a discussion that occurs very frequently in this book, and it actually occurs not just with Job and his wishes, but it's actually something that his friends talk a lot about as well. In fact, if you even were to peek back at chapter 4, verse 17, Eliphaz entertained this notion. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, Can a man be made right from God? Or can a man be uh, clean from his maker? But then Job picks up on that in chapter 9, verse 2, just where we were here just a second ago. If you flip over to 9, verse 2, Job says, Truly I know that this is so, but how can a man be made right with God. And then in chapter 25, verse 4, he reiterates it again. And how can a man be made right with God? And how can one born of a woman be clean? This is a burning question for Job and a deep wish of his heart. Oh, that there was a way that man could be made right with God. And Job admits, or at least he implies periodically in the book, He's not a perfect man. We've got to understand this. We've got to pull this back a little bit. You're like, well, everyone deserves judgment. Well, yes, I know. That's a good theology. That's exactly right. But you've got to understand this whole principle here that Job is bringing out. He's not arguing that he's a perfect man. As though he doesn't deserve any kind of judgment from God whatsoever. Rather, Job is speaking in a relative way for his situation. In other words, Why are the wicked prospering, while I, though relatively far more righteous than they are, am suffering the greatest? It's relative in comparison. But it turns his attention to something deeper, because he knows that he's a sinner, and if so, then and if God if afflicts even righteous people like Job, right, if God afflicts righteous people like Job, then what hope does all of humanity have to ever be made right with God? Do you see that? He's now thinking beyond himself, and he's thinking representatively for all of mankind. If I'm being judged and afflicted so much, then what does hope does anyone have of being made right with God? It truly draws Job and his friends into a labyrinth of confusion over this issue. Do we have a good answer for how a perfect God can make sinners right with him? We all know that we sin here and there. That's a given. What ensures us that God will somehow accept us when we stand before him? On what merits would we even be accepted? Especially if a righteous person could suffer so much if he would accept us, wouldn't the sin that we have compromise his justice and make it impossible for him to justify us? How can that sin even be dealt with? How is that even possible? God would have to undo his entire righteous character. This question boggles the minds of Job and his friends. And incredibly, they don't have a good answer for this in the book. And there's a good reason why they don't have a good answer for this. And we will see that in a moment. But that's wish number three. Oh, that God could make man right with him. Wish number four. Wish number four. Oh, that I would rise again. Oh, that I would rise again. This is a wish that we all can relate with. Unless the Lord tarries, or excuse me, excuse me not Lord tarry. if the Lord returns in our lifetime, I should say he doesn't tarry. We all must face our final day in death. For Job, he longed for there to be more than this life. Somehow, in his mind, there must be a resurrection. Certainly, God has a plan to renew all things, and certainly his godly ones get to be included in that, right? That makes sense. Doesn't God have a plan for that? But Job didn't have the benefit of the rest of Scripture at his disposal like we do. His theology of resurrection was hampered by his lack of knowledge, his lack of Bible. Job 19, Job 19, verse 23, lays this out for us well. There's a key word here, "o oh, that. See that "o oh, that at the beginning? Literally in Hebrew it says, who will give. Who will give? It's, it's an idiom that means oh that, and that's why it's translated that way, but it's a key word that occurs throughout the book. It's very interesting. And these are his wish formulas. So when you see an "o oh, that, you know you're seeing a wish. It's not every wish has to be used, he has to use an "o oh, that, but it is interesting that he uses it here. "O oh, that therefore my words were written. They were written down, and oh, that they were inscribed in a book or in a scroll with an iron and lead stylus forever that they would be hewn or chiseled into the rock. What does Job mean? What is he saying here? He's saying, I wish my righteous case would stand the test of time. I wish that death would not steal away my cause and, for that matter, steal away my life. Almost like what he basically says is words chiseled into rock, which thousands of years can go by and you can still see words chiseled into rock even to this day. I wish that after dying... I could find a way to eternal life and I would endure on and on. And this is where it gets really good. Verse 25. But I know my Redeemer is alive. And at the end, He will rise over the dust. And after my skin is destroyed or cut off, yet, from my flesh, I will behold God. There is a greater air of confidence in this wish. I know my Redeemer's alive. He's somewhere. I don't even know exactly who he is, but I know he's connected to God. In some way, though, Job doesn't have much revelation to depend upon yet he believes that god will somehow redeem him and allow him to meet god face to face even after his death he believes that and arguably he was aware i would argue of genesis three fifteen that the the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman and i would argue that that was handed down to him not by written written testimony because it wasn't written down yet but by oral tradition that was handed down to him and he believed in that And if God is going to crush the serpent and on top of that, allow Abraham, and I believe that Abraham has already lived by this point, that Abraham would inherit the land and that he would inherit that land with his seed forever. And probably at this point, Abraham has already died. We would argue that this book was written probably during the time of Isaac, maybe Jacob or during that time. Then God must have a plan somehow to raise Abraham and his offspring from the dead. There's got to be a resurrection. And Job would be included in that. Job has a wish, even an assurance, that he has a redeemer and that he will rise from the dead. The question that remains unanswered for Job in this regard is how God will accomplish that redemption. How will he accomplish that resurrection? Job essentially has no more information to add to it. That's all he can say on the matter. This is Job's fourth wish, that he would rise again and dwell with God forever. And wish number five, wish number five. Oh, that wisdom could be found. Oh, that wisdom could be found. Turn over to Job 28, Job 28. Job paints an intriguing picture here of the labor of mining in that day literally going down into the earth and mining out precious things. Indeed, there is a place for silver, it says in verse 1, that you bring out silver, and there is a place where they refine gold. And he begins to describe in chapter 28 how men dig deep into the earth, and they strap themselves to these rocks, and they dangle over these dark caverns and cliffs. And some don't make it out alive. They're willing to risk their lives. Why such a zeal? Why risk your lives for such a thing like this? Is it because you just have to? It's because it's just my job, I have to do this? No, this is what people do when they're seeking for gold, sapphire, diamonds, rubies, elements of the earth worth a a life's fortune, and then some. And though it's risky, perhaps sometimes nearly impossible, these rare jewels can be found. Yes, they can. And you can find that fortune. But, verse 12. Verse 12. But as for wisdom, where can it be found? By contrast. And where is the place of understanding? Man cannot find wisdom. Such an important point. It's rarer than jewels. It cannot be found in the mountains. It can't be found in the sky. It can't be discovered among the best scientists or the wisest people on the planet. And you must understand he's not talking about just any kind of wisdom. He's not talking about like a Chinese proverb or some kind of wisdom that we're used to on an everyday basis. He's talking very specifically about what God is up to behind the scenes, and what is the whole purpose of life? That is the kind of wisdom he's talking about here. Man on his own cannot figure out God and what he's doing and what life is about. He can't do that. That is the wisdom that Job is referring to. And again in verse 20, He says, now, as for wisdom, where does it come from and where's the place of understanding? He repeats it again. Why? Because he's in angst about this. This is something he can't figure out. Man doesn't have access to this kind of wisdom. Then, verse 28, such an important verse. This is a critical verse in Job. Then he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Hmm, that sounds familiar. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom to turn away from evil. Is understanding. Do you see what Job's saying? Do you see what he's saying here? Man doesn't have wisdom. Okay? Man can't find wisdom. So man's only hope is to wait for God desperately and pray that he will reveal it. That's his whole point. That's the whole point of this whole discussion. How do we know what's going on? What is God doing behind the scenes? Where can we get that kind of wisdom? That's what fearing God means in Job and in the rest of Scripture. It means that we are anxiously waiting for God to make His move. We are vitally dependent on Him to answer, to reveal, and to act. We need Him. And you see, this is so important. Job and his friends, they have no Bible. You've got to go back to that first understanding Job is probably the first book that's actually written in our Bible, at least chronologically, before even Genesis was written. The book of Job is teaching us why we need the Bible. That's what Job is teaching us. Why do we need the Bible? Job is actually kind of like a preface to the Bible, Not that it's not part of the Bible, it's like it's a a subset of the Bible or something. No, it's one of the books of the Bible that's just as much, but it acts like a preface. Job explains that wisdom cannot be found without God's revelation. It can't. So this is why you need the Bible. Here, let's start with Genesis. That's why reading Job sometimes first really helps us to understand it, why it's essential. In other words, without God's revelation, the Bible not... Even the smartest men on the planet, aka Job and his friends, can figure out what God is doing. No one. No one. We need the Bible. Job is teaching you that. That was Job's wish. He wished for God's wisdom. He wished for God's wisdom. Did he get it? Did he get that wisdom? Do all of Job's wishes come true? Turn your Bibles over to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. This is a great passage here. My son, if you will receive my words, verse 1, and my commandments you store up with you, to make your ear attentive to wisdom. And stretch out your heart for understanding. For if you call out for understanding, and if you give out your voice for discernment, if you seek for her as for silver, and you search for her as for what? Hidden treasures. Does that sound familiar? It should. Then you will understand what? The fear of Yahweh. Does that sound familiar? The fear of the Lord? and you will find the knowledge of God. Now, Job at this point would be like, I tried, and you can't do that. Now listen to verse 6. For what? Yahweh gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes what? Knowledge and understanding. What does Solomon realize at this point? Solomon, not Job. What does Solomon realize? Hundreds of years after Job already lived and died. And now Solomon has several books of the Bible sitting in front of him. What does he realize? He knows that only God reveals what? Wisdom. And he does so only through his word. There it is. Yes, Job's wish does come true. And we are the greatest benefactors of it, aren't we? Because we have the complete Bible. What about wish number four, the resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 mentions this. You don't need to turn there. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives to us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yep, Job does get a resurrection. He does. Why? Because God will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. The Messiah rose, and because he rose, we will rise too, and Job will rise. What about wish number three? How can God make man right with him? How can God make man right with him? How is ever possible that God could even do this and not compromise his justice? and yet still make sinners right before him. In fact, you know, Proverbs 17 actually condemns this. Proverbs 17, verse 15 says, the one who justifies a wicked man and the one who condemns a righteous man, they are both an abomination to Yahweh. We kind of miss there in the translation, perhaps, the way that those words are communicated. It's, it's, it's fascinating. The one who makes right a wicked man and the one who makes wrong or makes wicked a righteous man. You see the back and forth there? basically perverting good for evil and evil for good. That's an abomination to Yahweh. So then how can God make right a wicked person? Do you see that? Wouldn't that break Proverbs 17, verse 15? But you see, that's the masterpiece of the gospel. 2 Corinthians five twenty-one says it. It brings it into a concise statement. He made him who is what? Righteous, yes? who knew no sin, there's the righteousness, right? To become what? Sin. To become what? Wicked. Not that he actually was wicked, but that he would be treated as such. So that we, the wicked, yes, might become the righteousness of God in him. It just turns Proverbs 17 all around. Because God outsmarted that box that we get stuck in. In this paradigm, sin is still rightly punished and sinners yet go free. God's righteousness is upheld because all the sin was punished, yet God was able to make sinners right because their sin was taken care of and they are credited with righteousness because of their substitute, from their substitute. In this way, Christ standing in for his people is the unfathomable answer to Job's question, how can God make man right? Christ's substitutionary atonement that we all love and know so well, that is what solves the unsolvable. That's what solves the unsolvable. And in this, Job's wish number two, that there would be a day in court with God, now comes to fulfillment because of these things. Romans 8, verse 33, actually paints a day in court. Verse 33 in Romans 8 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? You hear that courtroom terminology? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who makes right. He's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Rather, he was raised. He was at the right hand of God. Who is even, courtroom terminology again, interceding on our behalf. Who will take the stand and accuse us on that day in court? God himself made us right. Who now can condemn us? now that we've been made right because of God. It's so incredible. Job's dilemma is actually completely reversed because he believed it was impossible for anyone to compel God to get on the stand. Remember that? It's impossible to get God on the stand. No one can do that. Now the role is reversed. God has now justified us. Who can compel God to unjustify us? Who can compel God to to get on the stand and speak against us. In fact, even further, we have a lawyer, we have an advocate, we have an umpire, the one that the same intermediary that Job longed for, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is both God and he is both man, and he can place his hands on both, just like Job wanted Job will get his day in court, and more than that, he won't even have to testify for himself. Jesus Christ will do that for him, and he will do that for you and for me. That's beautiful. And finally, Job was frustrated and angry that God would pester him so much. He wished that God would stop picking on him, that he would cease from putting all his energy into Job. And remember how Job said, what is man? that you magnify him? You're You're putting me under a microscope? You're magnifying me, oh God. I wish you wouldn't do that. Please stop from doing that. It's causing me so much pain. But then you know this verse. If you hear that verse there, it should sound a lot like Psalm 8, verse 5. And David picks up on those words from Job. But this time, everything is reversed. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? Now that David has divine revelation, he knows that God's focus on man is actually not for his ultimate arm. It's not. Quite to the contrary, God zeroes in on man to save him, to redeem him, to rescue him. Rather, if God forgets about man, then man perishes. But God takes special attention to man. And though we may suffer in this life, and we do, we do, we know that God's special attention is in fact for our good because he is intent on redeeming us. He's intent on redeeming us. And who can reverse his redemption? Once upon a time, there was a man named Job. He was righteous, but he suffered greatly for it. And he did not come to know why he suffered so much. And because of this, he expressed all his wishes and all his questions with all the angst in his heart. And then Job died without ever seeing any of his wishes come true. But it was not the end. God did hear him. And God answered all his questions and granted all his wishes. You can find them in your Bible on your lap. And I pray that you will treasure your Bible all the more until you get your victorious day in court with God. Let's pray. Father, it is incredible to see how you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done everything possible to ensure that our salvation is secure and that you have given us redemption and a promise of resurrection and eternal life because we have a mediator who is both God and man and who can solve the unsolvable by taking on our wickedness upon his shoulders and granting us his righteousness. Because of that, we glorify you and honor you and thank you that you remember us and that you take note of us and that you do magnify us to care for us for your namesake and for your glory. We thank you that we have this all contained in the word of God. And we pray that we would treasure it all the more. And we pray this for the name of Jesus Christ.